Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 7, Episode 2 Just beyond Shap, the M6 motorway cuts through the countryside like a gangrenous black wound that throbs 24 hours a day. Wainwright and his cohort must have petitioned well for the authorities to provide the impressive footbridge which spans the highway. Even 30 feet above the traffic, it was a disconcerting business crossing the bridge. I'm sure the fearful intensity of the traffic noise violates every industrial safety regulation enacted since the advent of the Noise Abatement Society. Research by the World Health Organization suggests several thousand people in the United Kingdom die prematurely each year from coronary heart disease caused by chronic noise exposure. Fortunately, our distress crossing the footbridge was short-lived. The rolling hills beyond the highway were peppered with wonderfully weathered limestone outcrops. Where there's limestone, quarries and cement works are sure to follow. Lime kilns, like motorways, demand a continuous return on the large capital investment they consume. Even on a Sunday, the nearby kilns belched a trail of black fumes across the clear autumn sky. Apart from the horror of the motorway, the lime works were our first close encounter with industry since leaving St. Bees. When one lives with industry, its squalid presence becomes tolerably commonplace. However, in the pristine lakelands, even for a few days, the vile stench from the smokestack is a stark reminder that poorly regulated industry is an enduring indulgence the world has yet to effectively control. The peaceful rhythm of moorland tramping was a blessed relief from the shock of clamorous traffic and industrial ugliness. Even the regular crump of distant seismic detonation or artillery practice failed to dampen the appeal of the quiet cleanliness of the outdoors. Against all odds, on an open moorland just beyond Odendale, where numerous landmarks fixed our exact position, we took the wrong track and got lost. Either the guidebook got it wrong, or we'd misread the map. We had failed to locate a major track, an ancient monument of two concentric stone circles, a stone sheep pen, a large limestone outcrop, and a tumulus. All the landmarks were in open country and within a few hundred metres of where we were. After half an hour of wandering and cursing the guidebook, we gained enough composure to locate what we took to be the correct path. That exasperating episode did little to boost our confidence in our navigational abilities. A middle-aged couple confirmed we were on the right track. From up the hill we thought you were a pair of standing stones, the woman joked. You were so still. That was when I exhausted all my energy cursing the guidebook, Peter joked. I've often been mistaken for an old grump, I chipped in, but never for a prehistoric monument. Do you know the score? the man asked keenly. Unfortunately not, I replied. We love Sunday afternoons on the moors, the man continued with a smile. But I can't imagine what we're doing here today. Like the rest of the country, we should have our feet up watching cricket on TV, his wife joked. There was no doubt about it. The nation was in the grip of test match fever. High on the moorlands is the ghostly landscape of Wicker Street, a limestone graveyard of fossil-encrusted tombstone-like outcrops. Scattered about are an odd array of erratic boulders, dumped remnants from the last ice age. 
The remains of a Roman road and the nearby stone circles add to the timelessness of the place. It's strange to think that the prehistoric stone circle may have provided a convenient backrest for a weary Roman soldier during construction of the road. In such a place, I find it easy to stand with eyes closed and feel the haunting presence of forgotten times at my elbow. A nearby cairn marked the final resting place of Robin Hood. What with Robin Hood's chair overlooking Ennerdale Water, Robin Hood's grave at Wicker Street, and the final destination of Robin Hood's Bay, even if imaginary, the names lend a sense of continuity in place and time to the overall trail. The Pennines loomed large and close in the afternoon haze. The washed-out silhouette of rolling hills pressed flat against the sky filled the horizon like a faded stage backdrop. The Pennines appeared docile and sleepy after the rugged majesty of the Lake District. Their smooth round hills resembled enormous yellow pillows, soft and domesticated. That afternoon, whilst discussing Tony Blair's Iraq lunacy, much to our dismay, we found ourselves lost on a quiet country road. The guidebooks and maps weren't so much misread as ignored. Later, examination of both the guidebook and the Ordnance Survey strip map made it quite clear that it was nearly impossible to get lost at that place. Fortunately, Colleen came to our rescue. The sight of our little blue car emerging along the road from beneath the overhanging oak trees was a great relief. A few minutes later, we were sitting in the beer garden of the George the Fourth Hotel, waiting for the amber brew to settle. Life was perfection, with our grumpy frustration as forgotten as the history of the ancient stone circles we'd failed to find. The George the Fourth had recently been sold for a sky-high price to a large brewery. The publican had snatched the money and was heading for a new life in sunny Cyprus. Although the pub should have closed the previous day, it stayed open on Sunday in deference to the outcry from the locals and to offload the remaining beer in the cellar. Our farmhouse digs were set in flat open countryside. Sheila, our elderly landlady, was warm and welcoming. Her octogenarian husband Joe was less effusive. He merely looked up and grunted in our general direction. Joe was slumped in a fireside easy chair and gave the impression he'd been there for years. Replacement knees and hip joints, deafness and immobilizing obesity were his reward for a lifetime working the land. The farmhouse was homely in a floral wallpaper kind of way. Every available space was crammed with knick-knacks. Sheila was a serious collector of Beatrix Potter animals. Dozens of life-sized Jemima puddle ducks peered out from every imaginable place. The staircase was a grandstand for soft toys. Each stair tread was a vantage point for a crush of teddy bears. Hundreds of unblinking glass eyes kept a close watch on the goings-on throughout the house. I'd often marvelled at the ingenious design of British plumbing fixings. In the short period since leaving St. Bees, I'd encountered all manner of contraptions, but none as dysfunctional as the bath at Sheila's. Peter jammed the plug mechanism, preventing water from draining away. He managed this feat when retrieving a sock which had been swept into the plug hole whilst he was washing it in the bathtub. Sheila and I managed to clear the problem. She twisted an enormous knob to operate a series of levers and rods designed to release the plug, whilst I prized the bung free with Peter's penknife. When we arrived back at the George, Hugh was busily attacking his dinner. 
Between gobbling food and gulping wine, he brought us up to date with the most important news of the day, the test match score. On this occasion, he wasn't bent over skimming words across the tablecloth. He sat bolt upright, as though his trunk was inflated by wind. Some spirited and technically brilliant batting by the Australians brought the baggy greens within a whisker of victory. Hugh let out in a mighty gush. His outburst stopped abruptly whilst he regained composure and sufficient breath for the next onslaught. In desperation, the Poms threw in a couple of dangerous swinging body-line googlies, leaving Australia just six runs short of equaling England's first-innings score, he proclaimed, gasping for breath and gulping red wine. The Poms will do anything to reclaim the ashes. After we were sledged out, England elected to bat and finished the day at 19 for 1 in their second innings. This test match has had more twists and turns than the red-bellied black snake, and everybody knows they're deadly. After a few minutes' contemplation, Hugh protested, The Poms are slippery bastards. Fair dinkum. Once, when I was 12 years old, I was playing cricket at school and batting. The sports teacher, who was umpiring the game from behind the stumps, caught a ball which came off my bat and declared me out. I protested, but my argument was ignored, and I had to walk. The idea that those who make and enforce the rules can disregard them whenever they choose so violated my sense of fairness that I never played cricket at school again. I later learned what a truly vindictive buffoon a sportsmaster truly was. My elder brother played in the school cricket team and clean-bowled the same teacher three times with three consecutive balls whilst the teacher demonstrated batting strokes in the nets. From that day onwards, my brother was never again selected to play in the school cricket team. The kitchen at the George had prepared roast beef of Old England as their special farewell pub dinner. It was beef all round, washed down with the house red, as recommended by our trekking mate and cricketing analyst, Hugh of Gippsland. The dining room was a haven of tranquillity compared to the mayhem elsewhere in the pub. The bar was heaving, with the closing down pub quiz in full swing. Everywhere, rural revellers were wrestling numb brains to dredge up old hidden gems such as Vera Lynn or Mount Fuji in response to questions that boomed from loudspeakers throughout the pub. Half-priced beer was guaranteed to get people out of their armchairs even on a Sunday night. To have taken part in the quiz would have been great fun. However, our prize lay in a different place. We invested in an early night to reap a bright-eyed dividend the following morning. Back at the farm, Sheila sent us off to bed with a cup of tea and a wedge of homemade cake.